Hey everyone, welcome to season two, episode seven of Whiskey Queens. We're back from the holiday break, and this week we're going to be taking a deeper dive into one of our favorite topics, corporate overlords. If you like what you're hearing, be sure to check us out at whiskeyqueens.com, at the Whiskey Queens on Instagram, and be sure to give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks, and here's the show. Oh, fuck it. Welcome, everyone. That'll work. I'll, I'll turn the volume up in, in uh, editing. <laughs> hey, welcome to episode seven. We're back from our little break. How are you? I'm all right. I'm all right. I'm all right. How are you? I'm, I'm okay. How's the insurrection treating you? Uh, <laughs> good. <laughs> I, how does one respond to, to said question? Uh, I'm doing personally uh, in like... I'm, I'm doing fine. Yeah, we're here. In, ter- in terms of like, I'm working from home. I wasn't sort of in the the vicinity of the Capitol when said events occurred. Thankfully. Um, yeah. I mean, I do live obviously in the District of Columbia. So it is always deeply concerning to me when events like that occur because it is my backyard. Uh, and I do think that a lot of people forget that people actually live here, that there are 700,000 odd folks who call the District of Columbia home, who are here with their families, their partners, their kids, you know. Yep. So it's, uh, it's an interesting, interesting thing. I got a How lot are of you? Te- I'm okay. Um, I got a lot of texts basically saying, I'm so glad you don't live there anymore when all of that went down. And then I actually had several follow-up texts that were, Paul still lives there, right? I was like, uh-huh. He lives many, many blocks away, thankfully, and there are no hotels near where he lives now. So I don't think he'll be running into any of these yahoos. So people were checking in on you. Oh, that's very sweet of the people. Yeah, so I was, I was running interference because you still live down there and my family knows that. Um, but yeah, I got a lot of texts being like, thank God you don't live there anymore. I'm like, well, I actually love DC, but yeah, this is fucking crazy cakes. Like, Jesus Christ. So that that's why I'm drinking this week. <laughs> Do you have anything you want to add as to why you're drinking this week? Oh, man. <laughs> I think that, I mean, those are all, uh, you know, valid reasons to drink. One, because I enjoy drinking or I, whatever I said in 2020. <laughs> What was 2020? It feels like 10 years ago. Mm. Um, I'll just second that. I'll just second that. Yeah, it's just a long week. I had a full conversation today with a coworker that just surrounded the fact that sometimes we feel like we're the crazy ones at work. Like when something happens and you're like, no, we should do it this way. And everyone else is like, no, that doesn't make any sense. And you kind of just look at each other and you're like, wait, but but no, how does this only make sense to me? And I feel like it's our political mm-hmm. landscape at the same time where I'm like, am I the crazy one? I don't, hmm, whiskey. Whiskey Maybe. will solve this. <laughs> Who knows? Exactly. Whiskey solves, I, well, I'm not going to say solves everything because that's not true, but <laughs> it, does, it does help in said circumstances. One of the things I would say I'm also drinking to the fact that like, I'm sure you're feeling this and everyone who's listening is feeling this, right? Coming back from the holidays, regardless uh, of you know the uh current events that are occurring between a pandemic and an insurrection and blah 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 have you but just coming back to work even though i'm not in the office it's just daunting 
and exhausting. And I just want to continue to watch television. Fair. I played video games the entire Christmas to New Year's break. And it's been a really rough re-entry into work life. Yeah. So for are. those of you who don't know this, which would be probably a good chunk of y'all listening, I enjoy sci-fi. I always have. I'm a Trekkie at heart. Um, and I started watching The Expanse, finally, on Amazon Prime. Or Amazon, yeah, it's Prime, right? Whatever it's yeah. called, Amazon yeah. stuff on the TV. Um, I sound really... <laughs> really stuff on the TV. Technically, <laughs> technically savvy over here. Good Lord. Pour me another. Uh, and it's really good. I'm enjoying it. Now, some of the characters drive me fucking crazy. Okay. But that's in everything I ever watch. So... You know, these characters are like, stop, where I'm like, y'all are dealing with an alien species. Stop being a whiny little bitch and just deal with it. But that's just me and my own sort of like feelings. Okay. So you're watching The Expanse. We're still making our way through The Crown. And because I haven't been able to get on a plane in the better part of nine months, I've started re-watching Departures and I've started re-watching Parts Unknown. And that's my like escapist reality mm. right now is watching all these travel shows and travel documentaries. So that's what's currently cooking on our TV. So what are we drinking today? The same damn thing. So I'm finally having what? a Queens Manhattan. So I've put all of the gifts that I received over the holidays to good use because you gave me 90% of the core ingredients for this. So I'm drinking, um, I'm using Woodford Reserve as the bourbon. And then I have the Chirassum as the aperitivo, and I have the, God, the bitters. What, what type of bitters are they? The uh, chocolate Aztec the bitters. Chocolate Aztec bitters. And then I was also gifted um, the cherries from a friend as well. So I actually have the cherries, and I'm using my Skull Ice Shaper as well. So I have a nice little beverage going on over here. Now, are, what are you using for a whiskey? Because I know we're drinking the same cocktail, but what's your whiskey? We are drinking the same cocktail with all of the same ingredients except for the whiskey. I uh, don't have sort of, uh, I didn't have on my shelf what I would call as, or my shelf, my bar cart over yonder. Um, I, I didn't have sort of what I would consider like Woodford Reserve, which is a good mixing whisk, uh, whiskey. Yeah. So I'm, I ended up using uh, the Distiller's Reserve uh, straight bourbon whiskey that I have from KO Distilling in Manassas, Virginia. Okay. It's it works for the drink. I for I made this drink with a different bottle of whiskey at first that I'll talk about in a later episode. And I was like, no, sir. Mm-mm. Just didn't work. I can't no. I couldn't do it. And so I had to remake the drink. That's what I like about Woodford in a Manhattan is it's really smooth and it blends well with a lot of stuff. Like I can drink Woodford on its yeah. own and be really content and really happy with it. But I also like making Manhattans with it because it it gets along with a lot of other ingredients. It just seems to be a really smooth mm-hmm. whiskey. So that's why I like making Manhattans with it. So I'm, I'm very happy with this. So good recipe, good for you. But we Yay. are drinking the same thing this week because we're not exploring any new bourbons. So this week we're actually just talking about corporate overlords to some degree, yeah, which we've mentioned in the past. So we've talked about a few, I think we've mentioned four in total in previous episodes and seasons. So we've talked about uh, Diageo, we've talked about Centauri, uh, Pernod Ricard, and Proximo Spirits. I think those are the four we've mentioned previously. Um, and yes. most of those are kind of the beginning, beginning and middle of season one where we covered the majority of those. 
Uh, so for Diageo, if we're just talking whiskeys, uh, for their scotches under the Diageo label or under the brand, you have Oban, Talisker, Johnny Walker, uh, Lagavulin, J&B, White Horse, uh, the Singleton. And then they also have Crown, Bullet, and Seagram 7. And if you go to Centauri, you're talking Yamazaki, uh, Hakushu, Chit-Ai, I'm not sure how to pronounce that, uh, Habiki, and Toki. Uh, Pernod Ricard, much smaller list. They have Jameson and Glenlivet. And then under Proximo Spirits, and this is a much smaller one, I realize. So we talked about Proximo Spirits, but they're in the millions of dollars of revenue, where the rest of these guys are in the billions of dollars of revenue. Uh, but they're like Bushmills, Tin Cup, Old Camp, Sexton, Pendleton's, and Stratahans, I believe, are under that particular label. But there's a ton of holding groups out there that are in like the billion dollars of revenue realm. Um, it's it's kind of crazy. how And like where they have their hands in, like labels I never thought would be international labels, I would have assumed would have been US-based labels, fall under these international mm -hmm. change. It, it's kind of nuts. Um, but we picked two each. So I'm going to talk about two and you're going to talk about two. We are. And just to refresh everyone's memory and if they want to sort of go back in history, the archives, uh, I believe that we coined the term corporate overlords in episode two of season one. And that's where I sort of talked about Diageo. Um, yeah. But yeah, we sort of decided that, that that would be the term we would use. Yeah. I mean, one of these guys, Anheuser-Busch, is worth $52.3 billion and they're a Belgian company. Um, and so these are from like late 2009, early 2000, these numbers, but yeah. huge, huge numbers. Below them is Heineken, they're 26.8 billion. Um, Acai Group Holdings, 19.2 billion. Uh, Kirin, 17.8. Diageo, 16.8. And then you get down to the quote smaller end of things like brown foreman is 3.4 billion um, and like i said we talked about proximo spirits they're in the the millions not the billions mm -hmm. but I, I they still hold a fair number of brands under their label that people would recognize and know yes but i mean it's kind of crazy to think that you look at something and you think it's local or you think it's regional or you think it's kind of independent and when you start to follow the money and follow the chain, it rolls up to these huge companies. And a lot of the times it really depends on how much control they let that location have over what they're doing. And I think with some of these brands, and we probably won't get too much into it, with some of these brands, they allow a lot of control at that local or regional level. And some of them, it's a very, very corporate whiskey or corporate wine or corporate beer where it's sure. controlled very much from the top down. Um, but it, the list is kind of crazy to see that a lot of what we drink isn't special. Yeah, I think most of what we have sort of talked about in the context of Diageo and Pinot, well, I don't know about Pinot Ricard, but Diageo and Proximo um, and yeah, those two in particular, uh, the whiskeys that sort of have fallen under their corporate overlord jurisdiction, I think have a lot more free range as independent um, distilleries. Yeah, I was running down the timeline of a few of these. Sorry, I'm like, I read the back of the cherry jar and they're like, so, like caution may contain pits. And I just ate the cherry out of the Manhattan and I'm terrified. I'm gonna I, crack have a tooth. Never in, I have never in my life had a pit in a Luxardo cherry. 
it says on the back, like, be careful. Like there might be pits in these cherries. And now I'm terrified that I'm going to like crack a tooth when I'm drinking a Manhattan. <laughs> You'll so I'm like, oh, well. It, we're of that age. I'm chewing gingerly over here. Um, but do you want to go first or do you want me to go first with my, uh, my first group? Oh my God, I can take a, take a running stab at it, if you will. Go for it. So what I was assigned, now here's the fun story for you all. Nick and I were choosing uh, the various uh, corporate overlords from this you know, billion dollar list he compiled. And he picked his first two and happened to like strike fucking gold and was like, yeah, they both have whiskeys. I picked two and bitches, neither of them did whiskey. And so I was like, we can't feature two corporate overlords who don't have whiskey as part of their portfolio. So then I had to go back to the drawing board. Anyway, I don't know why I felt the need to share, but I did. You kept finding ones so that were like beer one, only, right? Yes, and it's because I had some sort of, uh, I had stories associated with them, but oh. obviously they didn't have whiskey because uh, from my travels abroad, I've had various beers under these umbrellas, but yeah. I didn't, you know, you never know. Some of them may have distillery, some may not. Uh, the second uh corporate overlord that I will discuss actually has a huge beer component, but also has a few distilleries. Okay. But the one I'm gonna to choose to start with is a US-based one. Uh, yes, I was like, oh my God, is it? <laughs> I'm having like brain farts <laughs> over here. We haven't done this in such a while. I'm like, I'm so out of practice. Uh, yes, it's called Brown Foreman. So some of the brands that you all may know that are under Brown Foreman is actually one that Nicholas is drinking tonight, Woodford Reserve. Uh, Jack Daniels falls under here, as well as some other things that you may be familiar with, like Himador and uh, tequila. That's tequila, right? Yeah. Yep. Um, Finlandia Vodka, Chambord, Corbel. So they have a variety of different uh, products, obviously. My mother loves Chambord, loves Chambord over ice. I can't yeah. get into it. It's like, it's like cough syrup. I can't do it. <laughs> yeah, it may not be for everyone. I, I think it's great when you mix it with a little sparkly, sparkly. But, um, Ooh. so if you added a little Corbel and a little Chambord, I think that could be a little fun, a little fun treat, if you will. Okay. But anyway, round foreman to get back on track was founded in 1870 by George Garvin Brown, who was a young pharmaceutical salesman in Louisville, Kentucky, who at the time, you know, according to the website and all that jazz, saved about $5,500 to start uh, GTS Brown and Brother, uh, which was the original name of the company. It's obviously changed names to Brown Foreman, and I'll get to that. But he started this company with his half-brother, and they're there brilliant idea at the time in 1870 was to sell whiskey sealed in glass bottles to assure its quality. And the first thing they sort of distilled and sold in glass bottles was Old Forester. So it was the first American whiskey that was sealed in glass bottles for quality assurance and sort of became their flagship brand. And now just to give people some sort of perspective, you're like, glass bottles, like why is this ingenious? Well, back in 1870, they primarily, I'm not gonna say primarily, I'm sure they probably sold some things in some jars and some bottles, but the vast majority of whiskey was still sold by the barrel back then. Okay. Uh, or at least from what I read. 
So after several company name changes and all that jazz and a dissolution of a partnership with his half-brother, Lord only knows what happened there, uh, he entered into a partnership with his accountant and friend, George Foreman, and the company officially became Brown Foreman and sort of launched under that uh, name in 1890. That's all I can think of is the Foreman grill. Sorry. (laughs) I know. Every time I think, well, yeah, you're right. I think of George Foreman, right? And... um, well, because that's his name. Oh, my God, the irony. <laughs> wow, Paul, have another sip. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so in 1901, George Foreman dies. And you're like, okay, that's sad. Why are you telling me this? I'm telling you this because Brown, George, is it George Brown? God, their names are the same, aren't they? Yes, George Brown. See, this is where I get really confused when I do history and I drink. This is it becomes drunk history. Yep. Uh, So George Brown purchases all of George Foreman's stock holdings. And so moving forward from 1901 forward, a member of the Brown family has either been in corporate leadership or on the board of directors of Brown Foreman. Hmm. So very like, there's always someone kind of tied in, which is nice. Sure, always someone tied in. And uh, the, the tradition of sort of the family being tied in started in 1904 when George Brown's son decided to join the business. So that sort of set up this uh, Brown legacy and connection to Brown Foreman that still consists to today where like fourth and fifth generation folks are on the board of directors. Nice, that's similar to some kinda, of my companies too. Yeah, so the interesting thing about Uh, this particular company is that they made some key decisions in the 20s, 30s, and 40s that allowed them to really be prosperous. And you're like, huh, how's that? Interesting. So if some of you may recall, there was some tumultuous years in there that are involved in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, right? Between the Great Depression and Prohibition and World War II. So, you know, the strategic, I think the biggest thing that allowed sort of the broader success of Brown Foreman and Old Forester and other things under their label to move forward was they applied for and received a license to bottle whiskey for medicinal purposes at the start of Prohibition. So, which means that they never really had to formally like shut down all operations like a lot of distilleries that we've talked about previously, right? Yeah, you've talked in, about that a lot. About in how Maryland, kind of in Virginia, things. and how it sort of reshaped the entire uh, orientation of, of whiskey production in the United States. So that was sort of one of the key decisions that they made, which I thought was interesting. And then they also, during that time, they acquired Early Times, which was, is, a, is a whiskey, but one of the ones that was primarily, I think, sold for medicinal purposes back in during the Prohibition era. And uh, it was one of their first acquisitions, but what it allowed them to do too, since they had this licensure, they were able to basically mature barrels of stuff in warehouses during Prohibition so that they never really lost, you know, the maturing production, if you will. You seem, you have a question. I'm like, it's ingenious because it, Prohibition ruined so many distilleries and other parts of the alcohol business. It's ingenious that they kind of build this as medicinal and that's how they skirted a lot of these issues and survived all of that. 
Yeah. And so the other, the other like key thing that they did is they, I, I the leadership of Brown Foreman, I guess, predicted sort of the, the, the implications in the outbreak of World War II and Pearl Harbor. So basically within days of the Pearl Harbor bombing, they began producing industrial alcohol for the war effort hmm. um, that sort of allowed them to maintain operations throughout World War II. Because the other, you know, the thing that we sort of talked about, particularly when it came to talking about Maryland rye whiskey was when I talked about um, Sagamore Spirits was that it was the twofold that really sort of tanked rye whiskey, right? It sort of originated in that in the Virginia, Maryland, Pennsylvania region, but the combination of prohibition and World War II like tanked that industry for that area. Yeah. And so we sort of when we think about whiskey in the United States, we tend to gravitate towards Tennessee and Kentucky and bourbon. Not where the history begins, as we've discussed. Yeah. Um, the other thing that they did during this time is they purchased uh, Labyrinth and Graham Distillery, which was one of the distilleries that's founded. It was founded in 1812 by Elijah Pepper, who's one of the pioneers uh, in whiskey making for the United States. And he actually... Uh, not he, but that that particular distillery is where your drink comes from. So they ended up acquiring that in the 40s. Brown Foreman did. Okay, and that distillery yeah. is still there too. It's like a historic landmark in Kentucky. It is actually in, I have to look through my timeline, in 1996, they did some renovations and restoration and stuff. And in 1996, Woodford Reserve was introduced as the first new product of uh, that distillery after restoration in Woodford County, Kentucky. And eventually the distillery, the Labyrinth and Graham distillery was name was changed to Woodford Reserve in 2003. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so I'm gonna move us along a little faster because I wrote a lot of notes for this one. As Nick <laughs> can see, a lot of history. I've had like a timeline going on here. So the other things that you should be aware of is in 1956, Brown Foreman acquires Jack Daniel Distillery. Uh, which I think was a big thing for them. They, uh, they acquired Corbell, you know, champagnes and brandies in 65, Southern Comfort in 79, and then ended up selling that in about 2016. But they've had some really well-known uh, brands under their label. And one of the interesting things too is that they, under, you know, the Brown Foreman Beverage Company launched the first sort of new thing out of Jack Daniel Distillery since, uh, in about a hundred years since it was probably founded, which was Gentleman Jack Rare Tennessee Whiskey. And, and they've since obviously done a number of things like Jack Daniels Honey Whiskey and, oh, uh, and, and that other stuff. But uh, those are some key things. Uh, in 2006, you know, to an homage to your mother, they purchased, I don't know if it was an homage to your mother, but they purchased a <laughs> Shamboard brand. Uh, and then um, the other thing I thought was interesting since we are, you know, two queens ourselves, is that in uh, 2010, Brown Foreman Corporation received its first perfect score of 100 points, 100 points, points, 100 points on the Corporate Equality Index, you know, which is a national benchmarking survey that's done by HRC about policies and practices related to LGBT workplace equality. Nice. So I thought yeah. that was interesting. Yeah. And just to give some perspective on the numbers, right? Because you had mentioned some numbers. In 2020, they had three-point fill, three-point fill. Three-point fill, everybody. They had three-point fill. I don't know what three-point fill is, but they had it. 
uh, 3.4 billion dollars in net sales and about 2.1 billion dollars in gross profit. Dear God, more money than I can ever imagine. Right. And some of these brands, and this is just my ignorance of like how the business world works. Like I look at some of these brands and I would assume that these are just standalone businesses, never even conceiving that some of these would fall under the umbrella of some like major corporation. You know, you look at Woodford, you look at a few of these other names in here, and I would never imagine that Corbell belonged to the same family of beverages as Southern Comfort. I mean, I know know they sold SoCo off, but it's interesting how business works. I think this is the interesting thing about business, and I think that something that we're learning about, and hopefully our listeners are learning about in this process, is that, you know, we think about and we're, you know, we pick up a bottle, we buy it, we drink it, we enjoy it. And we don't really think about sort of the production process that's involved in it and the yeah. distribution component, right? So what corporate overlords really sort of, I think their, their contribution in a lot of ways is not necessarily dictating the production of whiskey. It's more helping with the branding, the distribution uh, and those parts, which are hard for smaller establishments to do and manage on their own. Yeah, especially when you take something international, a lot of like the timelines that I looked at with my brands talked about when they started opening up offices in Europe or when they started consolidating brands or purchasing brands in other countries to then get distribution rights. So it's to your point, yes, they might not be messing with a formula, but they might be assisting with that marketing and the opening of supply chain and the distribution process. Yeah. So my first one is, let me see here, uh, the Asahai Group Holdings. So under them, the big whiskey brand for this particular holding group is uh, Nika Whiskey, which have you had before? Have we talked about this? I have had Nika. I don't know why I was like, Nika. (laughs) Uh, I also am making like a crazy face into the camera that no one else can see but you. Um, I have had Nika, yes. Okay. So we'll have to talk about this more when we start talking about Japanese whiskeys, because I've never had Japanese whiskey and I'm very excited to explore this. Uh, So that's the big brand that falls under this particular group. Um, Other whiskeys include Highlight Scotch, uh, Wild Moose, Woodstock Bourbon. They also own Pepsi and Pop-Tarts. So there's a lot of stuff that falls under this particular holding group. Uh, So sorry to interrupt you real fast, but the other, I didn't talk about this in my my boring history, uh, but Brown Foreman also owned other things. And you know, one of the things they owned was Lennox. Like Lennox Crystal? Yeah, like China, like Lennox China uh, for a period of time. Yeah, Okay. crazy. Weird. And that's how this was too. A lot of like bizarre stuff fell under this holding group, like Pop-Tarts and Pepsi, um, like seltzer waters, lots of beer. Uh, but Brief timeline, a lot of this starts off with breweries. So like 1889, the establishment of the Osaka Brewery, um, which is the predecessor to this particular brand. So around this time in Japan, you're getting also the Sapporo Brewery. Uh, They were all founded in around this kind of like 1889, 1890 time period in Japan. Um, From there, it's like 1892 is the time frame where they start launching beers under the name Asai. Um, In 1893, they reorganized as the Osaka Brewery. Uh, And then as you move kind of through 1893 into 1900, there's awards and other accomplishments, but nothing really pivotal happening at this point. 
until 1906. Uh, so this is when it was established as kind of a joint venture between multiple breweries and things are starting to become consolidated under one name. And it's, I'm going to butcher this, like this is going to be like hashtag Paulisms or Paul Nunciations. Dynapon, I believe. Someone please correct me. Dynapon hey. Beer Company Limited. I have no idea. Um, but that's when they're starting to consolidate these brands. And so between early 1900s and 1940s, these are where different plants are opening, different products are being piloted. They also introduced a vitamin beer, which, oh. sure. Um, and they also experienced the Great Kanto Earthquake. So that's around this time period in the 1940s when this occurred. So it kind of explosive growth, explosive expansion, the opening of these different plants across the country, um, launching new products and seeing kind of what works and what doesn't and these weird, bizarre, innovative beers and drinks that they're putting out. Um, so getting into the late 1940s, um, 1949, the brewery at this point is split between Asai Breweries LTD and Nippon Brewery LTD under the Excessive Economic Power Deconcentration Act. So essentially there was a monopoly on booze and they then broke them up into two distinct different businesses. Uh, so 1954 marks Nico Whiskey, the distillery being officially established. So that's right around the time frame that, you know, we're lending whiskey to the entire brand at this point. Yeah, 1965, something really cool happened, which was the development of the world's first outdoor liquor fermentation tanks. So they did this in Japan in the 60s, which is kind of neat. Um, they installed three plants right in the, the mid 60s, and they were the first ones to have done that. So through the rest of the 70s and 80s, you have more plants opening, new products launching, such as soda waters, different types of beers. Um, they're experimenting with different types of packaging. Um, so they're kind of getting away from glass, going into different types of aluminum containers. So there's all these things. Like you look through their timeline and it is, I kid you not, 10 pages long in terms of a timeline because they list any particular pivotal plot point in their company's history, including every single president the company has ever had. Wow. Dating back to the 1800s. Yeah. So as we get into 88, uh, this is when the brewery also brings in a wine holding company. So the wine company was established. Um, they start quickly bringing in soft drink branches and kind of adding that to the brand as well. And then by 89, the company goes through a name change and becomes the Acai Breweries LTD. Um, so this is kind of where they containerize all of the different offshoots. They now funnel up to this one overarching company. Uh, 90, the overlord. The overlord, exactly. So in 96, they start opening European offices. And by 1998, the, they're creating their brand in Europe. So it's the Asai Breweries of Europe, uh, which is now the Asai International. Uh, and that's kind of to your point opening up supply chain, opening up distribution channels, kind of broadening their reach and extending out into different parts of the world to distribute product beyond the borders of Japan. Um, right around this time is also when they achieved 100% recycling of all of their waste materials from all oh. of their plants. So that was kind of cool. That was bonus points for environmental impact. Um, and then through the late 90s, through the 2000s to present day, um, there's acquisitions, mergers, this explosive growth kind of left and right. Uh, you see them exploring other Asian and European markets, acquiring and consolidating other brands into the portfolio. And then the most recent accomplishment in 2019 is when their 
Takasuru, 25-year pure malt, won the trophy for the highest awarded Japanese whiskey in the International Spirits Challenge. Hmm. That was their most recent accomplishment. Um, and then there's nothing really exciting that happened in 2020 with this particular brand. It seems like things went quiet for some reason. Um, I don't know what happened in 2020. but Couldn't tell you. Um, but it, it's interesting that they they literally looked for every particular thing they could possibly mention and spread that out over the course of 20 pages. But the moral of the story with this particular group is they started off as a really small beer-based brewery, started acquiring other beer brands across Japan, consolidated, started adding wine and spirit and then food items. Like they even have a baby food holding group under their umbrella as well. And just kept kind of growing and consolidating, growing and bringing in more brands to the group until they got to the point where they are today. Um, And they are a $19.2 billion company. Crazy amounts of money, but the big brand under them for whiskey is Nika. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. Who you got next? Do I really have to go? I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, the next one I have, whoop, I'm scrolling way too crazily, uh, is the Thai Beverage Company, also known as Thai Bev for short. <laughs> I like Thai Bev. I do like Thai Bev as well. So this is Thailand's largest. And so, sorry, let me take a step back. And the reason I'm taking a step back and you're like, oh my God, you sound so excited is because I wish we, we had, uh, we could show a visual representation where we like go from, take a little airplane from Japan and fly to Thailand. I'm, <laughs> I'm such a fucking nerd. But in my brain, that's what's happening right now. Just so you all are aware. We're like, doop. I, I can see the visual in my head. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so anyway, uh, Thai Bev is Thailand's largest and one of Southeast Asia's largest beverage companies with distilleries. And they have distilleries in Thailand, the UK, and China. They were founded in 2003. So sort of similar to what you were just talking about. I was like, oh my God, how do I pronounce the name? Because mm-hmm. you know, I'm terribly tragic in that endeavor. Uh, they have a strong sort of connection to beer uh, in their founding. So basically they were founded in 2003 with a, uh, it was a consolidation of 58 beer and spirits businesses that sort of came under the umbrella of Thai Bev, which is founded by Charon, whose last name I am not even going to attempt to pronounce for you because I can't even pronounce simple things like Proximo Spirits. Uh, effectively. So I, I, I'll spell it for everybody. It's S-I-R-I-V-A-D-H-A-N-A-B-H-A-K-D-I. I'm not even going to venture a guess. Exactly. So we're going to call him Charon, which is his first name. Uh, he basically launched this business in 2003. Uh, the family stake is about 30%. Uh, with him as the chairman of the board and his son, uh, who is currently serves as president and CEO. Thai Bev, which I thought was really interesting, is listed on the Singapore Stock Exchange Exchange because the Stock Exchange of Thailand prohibits listing alcohol-related stocks. Really? Yes. That's really weird. Okay, fun fact. Fun fact though, right? So Chang Beer and Mekong Rum 
are two of their one like Chang beer is one of the largest beers in in their portfolio and one of the the largest beers in Southeast Asia, uh, and Mekong rum is one of their most well known sort of beverages. Not necessarily their biggest sale, their biggest in sales, but one of the the most well known. And it's a type of rum that also it's like uh, it includes rice. Oh, okay. Yeah. As the like the base. Yeah, so it's it's yeah, it's like your molasses and rice and that sort of thing to make the rum. Okay. Um, so whiskeys, you're like, okay, Paul, get to the whiskeys, girl. So the whiskey is sort of under this. So it's interesting because a lot of their whiskeys sort of have Scotch uh, and and Scotland influences, if you will. Okay. So the the three brands that are sort of under their umbrella right now are Blend 285, which is a blend of locally produced Thai whiskey combined with peated malts from Scotland. Hmm. Uh, what I was able to sort of find under Whiskey Cast, which is also another podcast, uh, and they have a website, and they you know they've been around much much longer than we have, and have like a bajillion episodes. Um, not that you, I mean, you should listen to them and us, just don't abandon us for them. That's all I'm saying. Uh, they, I, I including their tasting notes mostly cause I found them fascinating, which was the nose for blend 285 is fuel oil, ginger and dried flowers. That is a bizarre combination of yeah. descriptors. Fuel oil, ginger and dried flowers. Oh, it doesn't get an, I mean, it keeps going. So the taste, ginger and curry powder with honey, a little reminiscent of cough syrup. And then what I love is the finish, a touch of smoke and spearmint, surprisingly drinkable. Surprisingly drinkable. I like that. I was like, after you're telling me it smells like fuel oil. Yeah. Hashtag I didn't die drinking this. And tastes like curry. Now you're telling me, and has an aftertaste of spearmint. Like those three things in and of themselves, when you put them all together, I'm like, what the fuck is happening? I don't want this. I don't want blend 285. Oh, no, but I feel like we have to try it now. I know, I know. Oh, um, Anyway, so that's one of them. The other one that's, uh, that's similar blend that's under their portfolio is Crown 99, which is a blend of imported Scotch malts whiskey with locally produced grain spirits that are produced in Thailand. Uh, I did some, some Googling on Crown 99 and was not able to find a lot of super detail outside of the Thai Bev website okay. uh, on this particular uh, beverage because I was curious about it, right? Most of, my, most of the Google searches kept trying to direct me to Crown Royal, which is a Canadian whiskey yes. and not the same. Uh, the last one that I will sort of highlight is, uh, you know, they also are the corporate overlord of Drummer Blended Scotch Whiskey, which is from Cromdale, Scotland. Uh, and that is a whiskey that was established, the distillery was established in 1824, so it's been around quite, quite some time. Uh, but that's just, an, that's the other whiskey that's sort of under their umbrella. Probably what you would consider your more traditional uh, scotch whiskey than, than the other two, right? Because the other two are blended. Yeah. And this is a relatively new company, but they're still holding their own at like $8.7 billion. Yeah, no, they, I mean, dude, Charon, my dear friend, who I wish was my dear friend, is worth some money. Yeah. It's in what, two thousand. 2003, is that what you said uh, they were established in? Yeah. Okay, yeah. That's a crazy amount of money 
for a relatively young business in the grand scheme of things. Because so, yeah, what's fascinating uh, about it is similarly to what you were describing about the history, right? Um, I'm trying to pull it up real fast right now, but their sort of history, when you go back through the history of Tybev, like obviously they go back like they go back to like the 1700s yeah talking about the uh basically the the rise of liquor production in thailand as sort of their historic roots uh okay marketing marketing well marketing. but also because things like uh i believe well you know they were a consolidation of 58 companies yeah so like these companies all have historic roots beyond 2000 you know prior to 2003 yeah even though Thai Bev itself only sort of popped up in 2003, Chang Beer and other, other affiliates have been around much, much longer. Very true. Okay, fair point. Yeah. So my final one, because we both chose two, um, and there's a long list, which I'll put in show notes, of kind of these big top brands that are in the, the billions of dollars stratosphere. Um, but my final one is Constellation Brands, which I actually found really interesting. So... Two of the more well-known whiskeys under Constellation brands are High West and Nelson's Greenbrier. Um, I've actually never had either. I commonly see High West around. I have not seen a bottle of Nelson's Greenbrier near me locally, um, but it's one of the whiskey brands that falls under the umbrella. So with Constellation in 1945, so in the grand scheme of things, kind of in the middle of our, our time frame here, uh, Marvin Sands purchased, God, I'm gonna butcher this again, Canandaigua Industries in upstate New York. Did I get that right? I mean, based on your phonetics there, yeah. Beautiful. Well, I mean, I put the phonetics in, but God knows it doesn't mean shit in this podcast. Canandaigua. So purchase Canandaigua Industries in upstate New York. Um, at this point, the company is eight employees and focuses strictly on selling bulk wine. Uh, in 1951, they're doing really well. They're surpassing about $1 million in sales. And this is split between branded wines and selling bulk wines to other bottlers and distributors. Uh, as we move into 54, the company introduces Richard's Wild Irish Rose, which is marketed as a New York State wine. I don't know that I would ever pick up a bottle of this, but at the time it did really well. It allowed them to actually build their own production facility to expand production to the point that they could reach the demand for this particular bottle. Um, so through the 60s, they're continuing to see rapid growth. Uh, when they get into the 70s, the company changes its name to Canandaigua Wine Company Incorporated and begins to trade on the New York City Stock Exchange. Um, in 74, they continue with their growth and acquire a majority interest in, here's another butcher job, Biscalia Brothers in California. So they're really expanding kind of the wine label side of things all through the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. Um, you see the introduction of J. Roger Champagne, that Roger Champagne, sorry, uh, which is the <laughs> second largest champagne company in the U.S., um, it's not technically Champagne. It's not from the Champagne region of France. But anyways, oh. uh, explosive growth through the 80s, uh, $50 million in revenue as they introduce, hold on, wine coolers. Don't act like you did never eat a wine cooler. Did never <clears throat> eat a wine cooler. Did never... have, another, have another drink, slut. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> 
so they're they're floating their budget on wine coolers because they were they were rocking in the 80s people loved their wine coolers in the 80s and 90s personally Rich. it tastes like like a dissolved now look pez I, I we have, even though I have an untrained palate, as we have discussed ad nauseum, mm. my palate is very different than the palate I had many years ago when, you know, things like wine coolers or daiquiri, you know, the, the daiquiri oh, wine coolers yes. or Zima or whatever have you was like the shit. Yeah, well, it gets better. So in the next couple of bullets, I'll talk about a couple of other really fun acquisitions. Um, so throughout all of this, it's very much a, a family-run business. The owner's son came in in the 70s, and then his son joined as general counsel in the 80s. So kind of similar to one of your brands, it's very much kind of a, a family enterprise to some degree. Both of mine were family enterprises. But oh, yeah. very true. Very true. Um, more acquisitions in the 80s, including Widmere Wine Cellars, um, which includes the Manischewitz Kosher Wine. So I'm not sure if you're sh- familiar with Kosher Wines or Manischewitz in general, but that's that particular holding company or brand. I have had some Manischewitz in my yep. time. Uh, early 90s, you see the company branch into spirits. Uh, so this is with the addition of Barton Incorporated. So it's mostly gin and vodka. It's kind of on the lower end of the spirit spectrum. Um, Mission Bell Winery, which is mostly box wine and grape juice concentrate, is also included. Uh, 97, the company becomes Canadagua Brands, which is the parent company. All the brands now fall under net sales is like at $1.1 billion at this point at 97. Uh, ciders are added to the portfolio in 98. They were ahead of their time, um, as well as Arbor Mist. Blech. Yep, exactly. Uh, so now, 1999, very important year. This is when they acquired Canadian whiskey brands that include Black, Black Velvet. Velvet. Black Velvet. So they own Black Velvet as of 1999. Um, sadly, this is around the same time the, far, the founder, Marvin Sands, passes away. Uh, his son, Richard Sands, becomes chairman of the board. And in 2000, the name changes to Constellation Brands. They said this was in, a, um, in an effort to reflect the broader range in their portfolio. Uh, 2001, the brand acquires Ravenswood, which is a higher-end Red Zin. I've actually had Ravenswood. It's actually pretty delicious. And in 2003, there are some partnerships and agreements that allow Constellation to import wines from Australia and New Zealand. Uh, so you see in 2005, the acquisition of Robert Madavi. Um, and now at that point, it's kind of, the cool part is right around here is when they start the project, Project Genome, which is the largest study ever conducted on wine consumers. And it was in an effort to understand what the market was and what people actually liked to drink and how that related to income bracket, uh, hmm. kind of lifestyle, like all these different things and how the different types of wines tie into different types of the population and what they do and don't like to drink. Um, so that was the largest study ever conducted and it was because of Constellation Brands. Um, you see more acquisitions through the early 2000s, including Svetka. Uh, so this is when they're now deciding they've bought this kind of higher end spirit and vodka. So that's when they start to move towards dropping the lower end brands. That earlier acquisition they had, they start to sell those off. Um, and the, they're staying kind of with their wine element while they're slowly adding in these spirits. So they actually own The Prisoner, which is a pretty great wine as well. I'm a big fan. And since then, there have been a few leadership changes, um, more investments into acquiring different brands that focus more on the beer side of the business. But overall, it's booming at $8 billion in annual sales. But like I said, the two 
the two big ones under this particular brand are High West and Nelson's Greenbrier. Um, but again, a huge portfolio that includes not only kind of clear and dark spirits, but wines and beers. Like it's massive, absolutely massive. Hmm. Interesting. Yep. And there's a whole list. Like I said, Proximo Spirits wasn't even on the initial list that we pulled up because they were in the millions and not billions, sadly. But there are probably 12 companies on this list right now that are generating billions of dollars a year in alcohol production and distribution alone. And they own a lot of the brands you see on the shelf today. Um, but interestingly enough, next week, we will talk about the brands that they don't own. All those small craft distillers. Ooh, craft distillers. Yeah. I have no idea what I'm drinking, but we do Let's, have a couple of craft distilleries right down the road. Delete out my singing for this episode. <laughs> um, nope. No, you know, reflecting here, listening to you and listening to myself talk, um, it's interesting because I like all I could think of as I sort of go through this process is, man... I was not born into a distiller, like a family that runs some sort of, that is a corporate overlord family, right? Like these, particularly like thinking of Brown Foreman uh, and his, you know, all the ones we were talking about and sort of their, you know, just the generations that are sort of like, I don't know if it's, I don't, I don't know how those people would feel if it's an expectation that they have to serve on the board or they're happy to do it or what have you, right? But like, it's just so different than I think yeah. the lives in which we lead where I'm like, I ain't got nothing like that. Yeah. No, that's not my life. Uh, it would be so interesting though. Like to, I don't know if I could find a job working as like a database administrator for a whiskey company. I don't sure. know that I would turn it down. Whiskey or travel. That's what I've recently decided. If I can find a job as a database administrator or like a marketing platform administrator for a whiskey company or for a travel company, yeah, I'll make that leap. Do it. Um, uh, we'll see. I don't know what my leaps are. I don't even know. I mean, I was talking about this to you pre-show is that, you know, I have both my undergraduate and graduate degrees in criminology, yet somehow in my life, uh, in both my professional life and my volunteer professional life, if you will, I'm always sort of either drawn to or pulled into roles that deal with financial management yeah which is just so crazy and i'm sitting here thinking to myself man should i <laughs> maybe i should have got an mba or an accounting degree or something like that but i didn't like any of those things at the time i was in in college so um I was going to be a photojournalist until i didn't and now i manage marketing and sales platforms so here we are you're also going to be a counselor I was in a mental health counseling program and I thought it was fascinating, but I am not um, equipped to consistently counsel those in need. So I will read articles and I find the DSM fascinating, but you don't want me as your counselor. My God, I love that. I am not equipped to counsel those in need. <laughs> Just, <laughs> I understood what my bandwidth was and um, that was not good. It. Yeah. And that's part of a counseling program, to be very honest. Like part of it is understanding if you should be there in the first place or not. And like I said, I find it fascinating. It does not mean I would be a good counselor. Yeah. So here we are. Now I manage databases and marketing platforms and I drink a lot. Uh, yeah. I don't do the first things, but I do the second. Yeah. Do you have any idea what you're drinking next week? No. Okay. Good times. Um, well, maybe yes. I mean, I think I'm probably featuring... 
this whiskey I got as a gift for Christmas from Arizona from Tucson. Okay. So I'm going to try to go hyper local because we have a couple of distilleries within like three or four towns. Sure. So I'm going to try and find one of the local bottles and chit chat about that. Maybe I've done already. I've already done my hyper local, my, my hyper local. You have done hyper local. Um, I have not, but I definitely want to make sure because I know these local ones are very small, privately owned, not part of the corporate overlord culture, if you will. Um, so yeah, I'm going to go find it. So can bottle. I tell you a quick story? Mm-hmm. The other is Joe Magnus, maybe I can't remember the name of the distillery, but there's another whiskey distillery that that used to be in Ivy City, but now is moving uh, back to someplace in the Midwest, Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota. I don't remember. Sure. Um, and you're like, why? Why is this relevant, Paul? Uh, it is actually uh, Betsy DeVos is one of the major investors in it, and so it's moving back oh. to where she's. Yeah, wherever the hell she's from. So, uh, you know, maybe it was fortuitous at the time um, my, myself and uh, my dear friends who you've all heard about ad nauseum uh, with Talcott and Ben Amon uh, were trying to go there, it was closed. Because uh, then we subsequently learned that it was leaving because Bessie DeVos is, you know, has done left the city. So I hate um, her. Oh, well, you, we all have our feelings. Hmm. She's a terrible education secretary. Sorry, I had a long career in higher ed, but she's terrible. Uh, on that lovely high note, I'm gonna Sorry. go find me. A, I'm gonna go find me a bottle to drink next week. Yes. Uh, well, as always, you can find us on whiskeyqueens.com at the Whiskey Queens on Instagram. And um, we would love if you are enjoying what you're hearing, if you give us a five star review on Apple Podcasts. Um, or if you're not, just t- tell us. Yeah, tell us, tell us how we can change and incorporate yeah, how some other we can improve. Stuff. Because let me tell you, y'all, uh, this is the first time Nick and I have recorded in like three weeks, and I feel rusty as fuck. Yeah, we also chose uh, a topic to dive into that we're coming in rusty, and we're also coming into something that's like not about the whiskey, but more so about yeah, the like so, owners. So you know, as who sang it? Was it Rod Stewart? Please forgive me. Mm. Please forgive me. Sure. I'm not singing. Anyway, um, on that note, it's been great. It's been, <laughs> it's been good. <laughs> See, we're so rusty, we got it backwards. Um, I know. I was just trying to shut myself up. But yeah, it has been good. It has and been great. We will catch you all next week. Yes, we will. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.